Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. So are you wondering whether to buy a home or rent a home? How much to save for your kid's education? How much to set aside for retirement? Today we're going to team up with NPR's Family Matters series for a special episode on personal finance. And we're going to hear from two of the nation's leading experts in personal financial issues. We'll be taking your questions and comments. It's a preview of a live event with NPR's David Green coming up in November. We're going to tell you how to take part. We'll try to answer some of your burning questions along the way. You can tweet us and find us on Facebook at Where We Live with some of your questions about personal finance. On Thursday, November 19th at 7 p.m., David Green and Yuki Noguchi will be at the Yale School of Management in New Haven for this NPR Presents conversation about personal finance. They'll be joined by Michelle Singletary and Tim Maurer, our guests today. They're going to tackle a number of topics, including home ownership and education and retirement planning. If you do want to ask questions for that event or even on today's show, just go to our Facebook page at Where We Live. And they'd love it if you use the hashtag NPR Family Matters. Joining us today from NPR in Washington is Michelle Singletary, a nationally syndicated personal finance columnist for The Washington Post, author of The 21-Day Financial Fast, Your Path to Financial Peace and Freedom. Michelle, welcome back to our show. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And joining us from St. Louis Public Radio today is Tim Maurer. He's Director of Personal Finance for Buckingham and the BAM Alliance. His forthcoming book is called Simple Money. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Well, let, let's see. Let's get started with some of the big burning questions that you guys have put out uh, in your columns and put out to us. And we'll just start here, uh, Michelle. This whole whole idea of renting versus owning a home. This has been a big issue here in Connecticut because, for you know, a lot of people, the uh, cost of homes has somewhat been well not that great uh, over the course of the last couple of years but rents have been skyrocketing it's it's really hard to rent in a lot of parts of Connecticut and so there's a lot of questions people have is it a better idea to buy your home or to rent a home what what's the guidance you're giving people right now Michelle well, you know, it, this is a, a, a important issue and happened, you know, after the housing crisis because people were saying home ownership is not the way to go. But really, it depends on your financial situation. Rather than look at the market as a whole, you need to look at your personal finance. Can you afford a home and all that goes into it? Lots of times people just sort of think about the mortgage, but there's, you know, taxes and upkeep and maintenance, um, things that you don't have to necessarily do when you rent. And so when you you're in a market like where you guys are, where it might be even, then it might make sense for you to try to buy. But if you don't have the money to, then you may have to rent and wait till you can save to be able to afford a home. We got a a question from Yvonne in New Haven. What does the housing market look like going out five, 10 years in the city of New Haven? Uh, Yvonne says, I'm a single mom homeowner and I have no equity after eight years of paying the mortgage and putting down 10% on my home. The value keeps dropping, leaving me underwater. Boy, Tim, this sounds like an awful lot of people. I mean, what do you say to Yvonne? Well, interestingly, if if we go back on what Michelle said, 
don't just think about what you expect the market to do, the housing market. What about your own personal goals? What is the purpose for you for buying that home? And one of the things I'd be thinking about is the time frame. If I mentioned the five to 10 year time frame, now if she intends to stay there in New Haven for the next 10 years, then I would say that she can quell many of her fears about what the market is going to do, because I think that's a long enough period of time to allow the market to respond from the crisis and start to get back to normalcy, I wouldn't be too worried if I was Yvonne if she does intend to be there for a decade or more. I think one of the things, though, Tim, is it's hard for people to readjust their thinking because for 20, 30 years, maybe even longer than that, and certainly uh, during the time when a lot of people who own homes right now came of age and started buying their first homes, you always thought, well, you know, if I buy now, I'm going to build equity throughout the course of a long time, and my home is going to be both a place for me to live and also my personal piggy bank. And it seems as though the market collapse of the last couple of years has just made us have to readjust our thinking a bit. And it's hard, I think, Tim, for people to readjust the thinking that quickly. I'm sure of it, John. But at the same time, the truth is, and Michelle, I think, would say the same thing, your home was never really supposed to be your piggy bank. There's no question that it could be an asset that would aid you later in life. For example, if you end up having health issues and you need to dip into your home in the form of selling it to go to a continuing care community or something like that. But my preference would be that people didn't necessarily look at their home as a piggy bank. And so it may very well be that the scare we had with the financial crisis is now just kind of resetting people's minds to what it should be. A home can absolutely be a good investment, but that's not necessarily the primary reason that you should become a homeowner. I totally agree. We and, and actually, when you go back historically, people didn't look at their homes as a piggy bank. They stayed, and you know, we were staying in our communities for we weren't as um, moving around as much. So you stayed in where you probably were raised, and you lived in that house until retirement. You paid it off by the time you retired. Then you mm-hmm. lived in it, and when you couldn't anymore, you sold it, used that money to help for um, living uh, in a, a, a living assistant person or maybe moving in with family and using that to help take care of you. It was really only, I would say, I think, Tim, probably what, like the late 90s um, and and into 2000s that we got crazy with this whole idea that our house was the piggy bank people pulling our home equity. And this whole question of being underwater, that only matters if you're going to sell. And so we need to stop looking at that. And historically, our homes were the biggest asset, but we now learn that we can't do that. We have to be diversified. Yeah, sure, you might have some equity in your home, but you also need an investment in account. You also need some cash savings. It has to be across the board and not everything in your home. Hmm. We're talking today with Michelle Singletary and Tim Maurer. They're going to be part of this uh, NPR Family Matters series program coming up in New Haven on November 19th with NPR's David Green and Yuki Noguchi. We'll be telling you more about how you can take part right now. If you'd like to take part in our conversation with your burning personal finance questions, we're taking them on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Again, at Where We Live, both on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us, as always, Where We Live at WNPR. Dot org. Uh, before we go too far away from home ownership and, and some of the, the the things that people are experiencing right now, Tim, I know that in the last couple of years, the federal government has made people uh, people's lives a little bit easier if they're underwater. Things like the HARP program. What's out there right now? If people are really, really concerned about whether or not they can refinance at a, at a normal rate or whether or not they can stay in their home as the value drops, what's happening out there right now that they might want to know about? 
Well, John, interest rates have changed and banks have also loosened up a little bit. So what we had precipitating the financial crisis and particularly the real estate crash was banks being all too friendly with their lending, giving people more money than maybe they should have had and giving it to them more easily than it should have been given. Then the pendulum swung back the other way and it, it became very, very hard to get a loan for quite a period of time. Now it's really come back to somewhat normalcy when it comes to banks' willingness to lend to folks. I think it's reasonable. If you have reasonably good credit, you should be able to get a mortgage. And if you have reasonably good credit, you should be able to get a a refinance today. I know I think we had one caller or, or commenter say something about a uh, an interest rate of 5.5%. Well, today, if you have good credit and you do intend to stay in that home for a few more years at least, then you should be able to refinance all the way down possibly to 4%. So interest rates are really back again, and I can't believe I'm saying this again, but they are back at rock bottom rates right now. And so if you have even decent credit, but especially if you have good or better credit, you should absolutely be considering a refinance if you intend to be in that home for several more years. Hey, Michelle, one last question before we move off of home ownership. You mentioned a little bit some of the calculus people have to make around renting versus owning a home, whether or not you want to deal with upkeep, uh, et cetera. Talk a little bit about maybe some of the advantages to people of renting an apartment or renting a home, whether you're uh, a young person who thought maybe you'd be in the housing market for the first time, but renting's easier, or whether or not you're getting ready to, to retire. Talk about the advantages of renting for some. You know, renting has gotten a really bad name, and I think it's because home ownership was pushed on people and many people who weren't ready for it. And and the 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 what you hear often is that you don't get anything for your money, or somehow you are not as financially savvy as someone who's bought a home. But you know, you are not a financial failure if you rent. Let's just really start there. I really want people to park there. You are not a financial failure if you rent. You are getting something for your money. Just look up and there's a roof over your head. (laughs) And the other thing is renting allows you to move where the jobs are. Lots of people are in homes right now in your area and across the country still trying to hold on to a home that they need to let go of um, and because they need to move somewhere where they can get a job. So, you know, and particularly, you know, I say in Washington, D.C. area, you know, we've got commutes that could be an hour, half an hour, hour and a have two hours. Well, that's a lot of money. So if you're, you've got a home somewhere, you don't want to pick up and move. But if you're renting, you can move to where the jobs are. It, you know, and if you, ha- if you manage your money well, you can save so that you can get some of the same advantages that you have when you buy a home. And Michelle, I'm sure you're hearing some of the same stuff I am from younger generations, Generation X, but in particular millennials, John. They're not as interested in homeownership because it ties them to a particular geographic location. If one of your goals or one of your values even more deeply is freedom and flexibility, then it is altogether likely that you should not be buying a home because that is probably going to hold you back from the goal that you want to achieve of being able to be flexible in your geography. I totally agree. And and here's the thing about how costs rent, because lots of people think they need their own space, you know, and I get that, you know, you don't want to live with anyone. But if you're in a high cost a rental area, well, maybe you need a roommate or two uh, and do that for a while so that you can save. Because uh, the important thing is if rent's higher than owning, then you've got to somehow bridge that gap. And that might mean getting, you know, a roommate or two. 
Let's talk a little bit about planning for retirement and, and start with younger people, maybe people who are uh, still dealing with roommates or two. When, Michelle, should people start planning for retirement? I mean, we say as early as possible, but there are real consequences to, you know, taking money out of a small paycheck every single month and putting it towards your retirement. What sort of advice do you give people in their 20s? To, to start saving for retirement as soon as you can. Now, my advice is a little different. If you've got a lot of student loan debt, I want you to get rid of that first and not worry so much about retirement because you've got some time unless you have a workplace a retirement plan where they match what you put in. So you want to at least put enough in to get the match and then the rest of it you're going to devote to debt. Now, if you come out and you don't have any debt, oh my goodness, the moment you walk into that office and sit down at your desk, you take your first call, you talk to your boss, then you you go up to HR and you sign up for your retirement plan. Because the one thing that the youth have that us old folks don't have, well, maybe 10, I'm not so old, (laughs) is time. Time, time, time. Time for that money to grow. Time for compound interest. I mean, it's, oh, my gosh, you guys, please do this right away. uh, Because then you won't have to save as much. And you won't wake up at 50 and 60 and think, oh, my gosh, I can't retire because I haven't saved enough. I, you know, if I can tell you really quick, when I first started my first job at the Baltimore Evening Sun, I, co- I covered a fire that day, and I was so excited, and I called my grandmother who had raised me, and I said, Mama, you know, oh, my gosh, I've got this great job, and I've had the fire. And she said, yeah, mm-hmm. Did you go sign up for, you know, you, to put money in a savings account and have your emergency fund and sign up for retirement? I said, no, but, you know, and, she, and, and click up. Just before she hung up on me, she said, I'm not talking to you till you do. And she hung the phone up on me. And then I so went Michelle, up to your mom HR. was the personal finance expert who <laughs> launched your career. She, you know, she was serious about the savings thing, and she would not talk to me until I came back down from HR, and well, then I could tell her about my day. Oh, okay. So I think we're all going to agree savings is important, and, and mom knows it, and everyone knows it, and Michelle and Tim are going to tell you. But Tim, okay, not all savings is created equal. If you're going to pay into your retirement in your twenties, I mean. What are your best options? I mean, how should you save money? Because not every investment is going to be the same. Well, the best option, the very best option, and Michelle already alluded to this, is free money match from your employer. If you have a 401k, that could be a good place to put money because it's going to go in there pre-tax. It's going to grow tax-deferred. Now, you should know that it's going to come out, and you're going to have to pay full ordinary income tax on it. But the primary benefit, the thing that takes the 401k from good to great, is that you're getting free money match. Let's say your company, for example, says we will match 100% of the first 3% of your pay, then you, in my opinion, have a moral obligation to put in at least 3%, and there you're getting a guaranteed 100% rate of return. Everybody's concerned about the markets these days with the volatility we've been seeing. You cannot beat a guaranteed 100% rate of return. Your company may also say something like, we'll match 50% up to the first 6% that you put in. There, you're going to have to put more in in order to get all of the match, but that still is going to be a guaranteed 50% rate of return on that money you put in. Now, after you've gotten the match taken care of, John, I believe that the next best bucket for young people especially to be putting money into is the Roth IRA. You're going to put money in there after tax, but it is going to grow and be distributed tax-free. And having that bucket of tax-free money down the road, I can virtually guarantee is going to benefit you in a meaningful way. Before we take our first break, I want to get to the other end of the 
financial allocation spectrum. We got uh, a question from Cora in North Haven who says it's difficult to decide how to allocate money during and for retirement. My husband's 63. I'm almost 60. I'm unemployed. He'll be retired this year. My children are finally through with college and on their own. The house is paid for. We have no loans. I'd like to enjoy life while I'm still relatively young and can enjoy it. Um, And she goes on. I mean, she's asking these questions that are really important to an awful lot of our listeners, Michelle. You know, we've got some IRAs, but we can't live very long on what we have. What are the guidelines for how we should put away money in retirement and then also live at this very vital age of late 50s through, you know, 65 retirement age? Right. Um, well, you know, when you get these kind of questions, first of all, it's hard to, to answer like where and what percentage because we don't know everything about what she's got. But the one thing I heard in your note that is going to bode well for them is that they have no mortgage. If you look at the percentage that you devote to your mortgage pre or post retirement, it's anywhere from 30 in some areas, probably your area, 40 percent. So right there, they have done themselves well by not dragging a mortgage into retirement. Now, what she's probably talking about is what, how much should she take from her per her different pots in retirement? And that figure traditionally has been, I guess Tim can confirm on this, about four percent. But if they don't have a lot, which it sort of sounds like, um, they might sort of do some other shifting in some of their expenses. But it does sound like that they can do okay in retirement, um, and they may still need to invest for growth because if they're retiring at sixty and the lifespan is in the mid mid 80s and almost to 90 these days, um, then they've got some time to still let that money grow while they are pulling some of it out during retirement. Tim, some thoughts? Yeah. Historically, John, we have the retirement three-legged stool. And I'm pretty sure Kara had all three legs of the stool in play where she's going to be getting some pension income, or she and her husband will be, where she's going to be getting some Social Security income. And then she's going to be trying to create additional income from her portfolio, her personal savings. Now, the mere fact that she's going to have their, their mortgage paid off and the fact that she's got three legs of the stool actually puts her in a more favorable position than, frankly, most people are going to be in retirement. But I still hear a good deal of anxiety in Kara's voice. So I would recommend that for the portfolio portion, for the savings portion, that she err on the side of conservatism. She should absolutely have a balanced portfolio that has both exposure to stocks and bonds, likely through mutual funds. I would prefer mutual funds that have very low expense ratios and don't try and beat the market every chance they get. But then have a diversified portfolio. It sounds to me like the wise move for her could be somewhere in the 50% stock exposure, 50% conservative fixed income, and that's going to help decrease the anxiety that she clearly is taking into retirement. And by the way, that's one other thing we should mention. Retiring is one of the most stressful events of one's lifetime. We picture toes in the sand, golf every day, but because you're going from helping control your income on a day-to-day basis to not having control, it's a very, very stressful event, and people should plan not only financially, but emotionally for that stress to come. Yeah, and we used to plan to do this at 60 or 65, and now a lot of people are planning to retire much, much later than that, if ever. We're talking with Tim Maurer, who's a financial planner. He's got an upcoming book called Simple Money. He joins us today from St. Louis Public Radio. Michelle Singletary is a nationally syndicated personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. She's from NPR in Washington, D.C. today. They're both taking part in a program November 19th at 7 o'clock with David Green and Yuki Noguchi 
from NPR. It's at the Yale School of Management. It's already sold out, but you can still take part if you want to ask questions that they may use during this upcoming program. Just find us on our Facebook page at Where We Live. There you can also ask questions of us today as we talk personal finance here on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're taking your questions about personal finance, and I know you have a lot of them. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Our guests today are Michelle Singletary and Tim Maurer, two of the best-known names in this world of personal finance. They're both going to be with uh, David Green and Yuki Noguchi of NPR at the Yale School of Management for a special program, NPR Presents Family Matters. Be taking your questions there at Yale on November 19th. That event is sold out, but we're going to get a lot more questions on today's show at where we live both on Facebook and Twitter uh, we're also getting some phone calls here so let's go to the phone Roy is in Guilford hi there Roy you're on where we live uh, uh, hi John um, I have a question about the potential impact of failing to raise the debt ceiling uh, especially as it pertains to the possibility of an actual default um, like many retired people we have a fair amount of our money in a uh, target retirement income fund. Uh, that fund is uh, 30% stocks and 70% bonds. And if we were to default, I'm wondering what would happen to the value of that account and whether or not in the light of a prospective uh, failure to raise that debt ceiling, I basically ought to just sell it right now and get out of it and put it into cash. Roy, a good and very scary question. Some thoughts, Tim? Roy, you are not silly for considering the impact that this might have. I totally understand it. One thing that I find is really, really important in our personal finances, however, is to focus primarily on the factors that we can control. So even Michelle and I, who have a voice, we're not actually going to have an impact on the debt ceiling debate. And therefore, why should we worry about it? Why should you worry about it? Now, one of the reasons, and you've posed that, is because of the impact that it could have on your portfolio. But what I would suggest is this. Between now and the day you leave this earth, there are going to be a heck of a lot more debt ceiling debates. There are going to be, sadly, more wars. There are going to be more financial crises. There are going to be more bubbles. And I do not believe that you should be investing based on the next potential catastrophe. I believe that you should be investing looking at that lengthy, lengthy spectrum. And so I believe that if, as it sounds like you have done, you've taken some time and thought to think about what your portfolio structure should be. I think that then you can alleviate the worry that you might have about the next potential catastrophe because you're really not investing that money for tomorrow or even next year. You're investing it for the next, what, 30 years plus. Well, okay, Tim, but I just have to ask, and this is really an important part of our conversation today, so much of everything you and Michelle are talking about really has more to do with emotion and psychology than it does with you know, any, any numbers that add up to anything. I mean, the reason why we pay attention to what's happening in Washington and on Wall Street is because we're able to see in the news our money going up and down, and then we get those quarterly statements and we go, oh, my goodness, am I in the wrong thing? Um, Give us a little bit of uh, give us a little bit of good news, Tim, about how it really works. Because as we listen to financial programs like are on NPR and on Marketplace, sure. and we hear the markets going up and down every day, it's very easy for people to get incredibly worried about what's happening and maybe getting too worried about what's happening. 
Absolutely. John, here's the bottom line. Personal finance is more personal than it is finance. And that that's not like just a catchy slogan or something like that. It's actually scientific fact that the dealings that we have with money are much less about the dollars and cents and they're much more about who we are and our own emotions and our own concerns. For example, behavioral scientists have proven that it is twice as painful to lose money in the market as it is pleasurable to make money in the market, twice as painful. So what we have a tendency to do is make financial decisions based on those underlying fears that we all have. I've even read stuff Michelle has confessed publicly and said, look, when we went through the financial crisis, it was painful. And I don't think there's even a financial advisor out there, a brilliant economist out there who was not worried about what was going on in 2008 in the market, in the economy. But nonetheless, if we know that in advance, then we can plan accordingly. We can take our emotions into account. A lot of advisors say just ignore your emotions. That is not my advice. I believe we should, we should recognize our emotions, and then we should plan with and for them going down the road so that when things get scary, when somebody's in the position that Roy is in today, they won't make the wrong decision and sell completely out and just hope for the best. M- right. Michelle, give right. us some emotional help here. I totally agree. And I I would like for you to use that fear to handle something that you do have control over, like the accumulation of debt, like your spending, the things that you actually can control. So if you're going to be fearful, let's use it to your advantage. So if you've got debt, get the thing the thing is, you know, when you take stuff off the table like debt and you reduce your spending and you live, I'm not saying live like a miser, but live so that you if when there is a crisis when the market's down and let's say you're in retirement and have to use that money, then you can make it stretch a little longer. The problem is people use fear and they don't work at both ends. They're not really investing at the level that they should and they're accumulating debt and spending like crazy. Um, and so I totally agree with that. Uh, Tim, you know, this whole personal finance thing is so about what you think and how you grew up and how you have money. And, you know, even when couples have money arguments, it's really not about the money. It's about all the baggage you bring to relationships. Um, and so just worry and, and let's just say not worry. Let's just be concerned about the things mm-hmm. that you can control. Mm. If you want to join us, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I will say we're having a few problems with our phone system today, but we are getting some phone calls through at 860-275-7266. So let's go back to the phones and try Derek in Windsor. Hi, Derek. Good to hear from you. Yeah, John. Good to hear from you, too. Let me have a disagreement, and and I want to make a comment. First, the comment, my daughter, from she was in school, preschool, the, the school had a program where they sign them up with a check, with a savings account. I don't hear you guys mention that. And that's very good for the young kids to start them out, you know, thinking in that way. And uh, and she has been, you know, doing that ever since. Now she's 23 years of age. So that's a very good starter point from the school. But right. the second point I want to make, I disagree with your guest, the gentleman, when he talk about free money with the 401k. I don't know of anything free in America, and I surely believe that's now free money. That's part of the money that you're supposed to be getting as you're paid anyway. Uh, well, comment, John. Uh, Derek, thank you very much for the two comments. <laughs> well, Derek, I, Tim, why don't you address the second part? He says nothing in life's free. That's another thing that we hear from our moms periodically. What do you say to Derek? 
Well, I appreciate Derek's correction, actually, John. He may be indeed correct. Nonetheless, whether it is generally considered part of your compensation or not, surely we should take full advantage of it. That is, any benefit that we get from our companies, I actually think people don't spend enough time looking at their quote-unquote total compensation package, ensuring that they are making the very, very most of all of the benefits that comes from their company, whether it's health insurance related, whether it's maybe getting a free access to a gym, or in, in this case, getting the free money in your match, just because it may not be quite as free as we would hope it is, doesn't mean we shouldn't take advantage of it. And I'm sure Derek would agree with that. Yeah, we will say take advantage of it. It may not be free. It's it's some of what you're supposed to be getting paid, but at the same time, still take advantage of it. Hey, Michelle, I'd love for you to address this other part of Derek's question, though, or his comment. You know, he said getting a savings account for a young person is really important. I know a lot of schools are trying to teach financial literacy at an early age, and we find over and over again the kids aren't as financially literate as they can be. What are some thoughts you have? Well, um, a couple things. Uh, I personally think that financial literacy and training your children begins at home because the schools can't teach the values that you would teach your children. My husband and I believe in tithing. My school is not going to teach my children to tithe. Um, And so, you know, we have a... uh, we hate debt, my husband and I. We despise debt. We teach our children to despise debt. Uh, and, and the school programs that they go to aren't necessarily going to teach that value. Now, if you are not capable or your children are not getting it, then I do think that one place where we know they all gather is school. So I'm sort of on two avenues. I think that, yes, let's have some financial literacy courses in school, but it ought to be supplemented with helping the parents and bringing them them in and teaching because those lessons they learn in school are not going to be reinforced at home if you don't get to the parents. Um, and I and I just think it's it's got to be a two prong approach. And if I can jump back a little bit about the compensation, of listen, course. when you get paid, you know that there's taxes taken out, Social Security, Medicaid. Now, when you get that money to your four hundred one k, all of it is going to the four hundred one k. And secondly. We know that people don't necessarily save on their own. We know this. The studies look at even when people have a match and free money, they don't take advantage of it. I like that companies are doing that because it encourages people that might not be as um, disciplined as some of those people who are listening to save for themselves. So I feel like it's sort of a forced way to get a lot of people saving for retirement who might not necessarily do so had there not been a match on the table. Okay, you brought up debt, Michelle, so I want to get to that. You say you and your family, you despise debt, but there are some debts that are that are sensible, right? I mean, you go into debt a little bit to, to buy a house. You go into debt certainly uh, for your schooling, maybe to buy a car that gets you from one place to another. I mean, what do you consider debt and what John, debt's good? Yo, John, oh, John, no. I'm waiting John. into it now. You know, I believe, and, and I think I love Tim. He, we are so on the same page. Listen, this is all about your, your mentality. Uh, and I try to get people to defi- despise debt because we have this whole idea that there's good debt and bad debt. And you all, you started to sort of say that list. There is no debt that is good. 
There is debt that may be necessary. So when most Americans cannot save enough to buy a home, probably before they're 50 or 60. I get that. So I'm going to give you that. Um, But student loan, you absolutely don't need to take on student loans. You absolutely don't need to take on a loan for a car. I try to encourage people to save for these type of items so they don't have to uh, incur um, debt. Now, I understand that I'm way over here in the field. I get that. But if I can get you to despise it so much so that when it when you do decide for yourself that you're going to take on debt that you're going to take on a little less none of my children are taking on debt to go to college and we are not taking on debt to go there and I understand that there are a lot of people who are not in the financial position that my husband and I we are very blessed but there may be a different way for you to go to college whether than go to a four-year college go to a two-year community college stay at home take met credits and then transfer to a four-year university you You've cut the cost tremendously, and you still have a college education. But the way we push debt on people, we've told families, send your kids to college no matter the cost. And that cost has been too high. We look at the the, the, the overall outstanding student loan debt, it's over a trillion dollars. And we don't even take into account the people who have debt and don't have a degree. So, yes, I I don't embrace that there's this idea of good debt and bad debt. It's all bad. It's just a matter of how much you're going to take on and you can handle it. And when you do get debt, like your home debt, you get rid of that debt as soon as you can. Are, are you Michelle, as far out there? The go, go ahead, Tim. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, I'm so excited, that, John, that I have to jump in and say I agree 100%. Michelle is not way, way out there. She is spot on. The way that I've described it is there is no such thing as good debt. There is bad debt, and then there is better debt is the way I look at it. <laughs> and certainly a home mortgage at a very, very low interest rate and, and perhaps a shortened term, that's the very better-est that you could possibly get. I do believe that when it comes to... The, uh, the, the public policy. So we go back to something that Roy was discussing a minute ago. Public policy said home ownership is great. Everybody should own, own a home. Education is great. Everybody should have an education. Unfortunately, the way that we interpreted that as a society is that any amount of debt taken on in pursuit of home ownership, any amount of debt taken on in pursuit of an education is therefore good. And it's absolutely dead flat wrong. Mm. Michelle is absolutely right. To the degree that we're able to steer clear of debt, we simply will have more freedom financially and and personally and emotionally in our lives. That's all there is to it. Okay, so we've established that you both agree that no debt is good, including debt for cars or colleges, that sort of thing. Something you've written about, Tim, and, and this is a fascinating piece because Americans have a lot of debt, not necessarily just because they're sending their kids to college or because they drive a fancy car that they still need to get to work, but it's because they buy things that they just don't need at all. You wrote recently about you know the decision to buy a Vitamix blender for 700 bucks as opposed <laughs> to something a bit cheaper, but this is something people face all the time. They try to justify personal costs, and then it catches up with them over time with compounding credit card interest. I mean, what do you tell people about just buying stuff? Well, okay, most of us tend to think that we have a rational brain and an emotional brain, right? That that sometimes we make irrational decisions that are emotional, the impulse purchase, and then there are other times that we hope we're using more of our thinking brain. So behavioral science actually confirms this. System one and system two is what Daniel Kahneman calls it in thinking fast and slow for anybody who's really interested in this. It's absolutely fascinating stuff and a surprisingly easy read. But between these two systems, the two decision-making processes, would you believe it that 90% 
of the decisions that we make, including maybe even especially the financial decisions, we're actually making with our emotional brain. And then we use our rational brain to rationalize the decision that we just made. That's how people end up spending $750 on a blender. And don't get me wrong, I'm not judging you if you've got that Mac Daddy Vitamix blender. But when your friend says, I just paid $700 for a blender, it's completely and totally worth it. Tell them, my friend, worth is relative. And so to me, it may indeed not be worth it. And that's one of the considerations that we have to make. We have to recognize and try to recognize when it is that our emotions are taking over and engage our thinking brain to make a determination if indeed that really is the best decision or best purchase long term. Michelle, I can't wait to hear what you say about this. I, you know, we are like, you know, Siamese twins. <laughs> it's absolutely. I mean, my husband and I teach a financial literacy program at our church. It's a 10-month program. And we also teach uh, inmates who are about to be released from prison how to handle their money when they get, uh, get out of prison. And the first couple sessions, we don't, nobody picks up a pencil. Nobody has a budget. We aren't looking at the market. We spend the first ha- a quarter of the program talking about sense of entitlement, talking about how to make better decisions, sort of getting to these sort of emotions and why we do the things we do with our money that puts us in financial jeopardy. We're always looking at what other people have. Uh, and, and I always tell people, you know, you know, the whole phrase that, you know, the grass is always greener, but you don't know what people put on that grass to get it so green, right? You don't know the crap that they're going through, <laughs> you know, to have that car that you are envying, to have that education. You know, right now, my son's a senior in high school, and the first question people ask, well, what school is he going to? And if I say community college, you can you can see the look on their face. What did you do wrong? What did he do wrong? And I mm-hmm. and it just happened the other night. And I told that mother, I said, really? I'm making the better decision for my son because he's going to save half the cost, if not more. But, and he has autism. That's one of the reasons why he's going to community college. But that's that's beside the point. You know, we, we're looking at what other people do and what other people have. And we've got a culture of looking at the bling um, and we don't look what's behind all of that. You know, you look at wealthy folks who go broke because people say, if I just made a little bit more money, well, if you don't handle what you already have and you get more money, your problems are just going to be more expensive. Okay. So Michelle, before we take our break, I just want to push back a little bit on something because I think everything you're saying makes absolutely perfect sense. And the bling and the, the stuff that we don't need, I think we can all honestly look at ourselves and say, there are some things we buy that we just don't need. And if we, if we were a little bit more considerate about our financial futures, we wouldn't do it. But that said, Don't you want to go on vacation? Don't you want to see the world? Don't you want to take time off of a stressful job, even to stay home with the kids? I mean, don't you want to, I don't know, spend money on a nice dinner out? I mean, what's your advice for people on how to prioritize these things? Because we are going to buy something nice. We are going to buy the nice blender. Maybe not the $700 one, but something for ourselves. And what do you tell people, Michelle? I love that question. You're absolutely right. Because I know I get that question all the time. Oh, my gosh, your children must hate you. They're in this room with no TV and no clothes. I run down a list of what you can do before you can have those pleasures. So what this is my standard thing, because my husband and I and my whole family, we take a two-week vacation, five-star resort 
every year. But here's, here's why we can do that. We have we tithe, first of all, so we give first. Uh, we save for our retirement at a rate that we feel like we can retire comfortably. So we max out, both my husband and I have been for the last 30 years. We have ret- uh, uh, student, uh, uh, college funds for all three of our children that are funded at a rate that they can go to a state uh, university. And if we don't have enough, they can stay at home, but they can still get a good education, no debt. We have an emergency fund. For us, we have at least a year. That's a little extreme for most, but for most people, I say at least a minimum of three months of living expenses and then no debt. So, and I will allow you to have your mortgage, but if you've got a car loan, student loan, credit card debt, then, then all bets are off. You can't take that vacation. You can't buy that $700 blender. You're going to do what it takes to be painful to get rid of all that stuff. Now, when all of that happens, then, and you can tick off those things that I just said, then go ahead and have that vacation. Go ahead and buy that $700 blender if you want. Go ahead and buy the second vacation home with cash. You know, do the things that your heart desires, but I want you to suffer before that so that you make sure that you have security before you have pleasure. (laughs) You're making an awful lot of people feel bad about those kale smoothies they drink every morning. (laughs) Michelle Singletary is a nationally syndicated personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. Tim Maurer is a financial planner whose new book upcoming is called Simple Money. They're both joining us today in advance of a special program that we're doing along with WSHU Radio and NPR. It's at the Yale School of Management, November 19th. David Green and Yuki Noguchi from NPR will be joining Michelle and Tim to take some personal finance questions. If you have questions for them for our show today or maybe to be asked at this event, just find us on our Facebook page at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to take a look at how women's funds, both locally and globally, are helping to advance women's rights and break down gender barriers. We will also hear from American feminist and activist Gloria Steinem. Her new memoir is called My Life on the Road. Hope you can join us for that conversation tomorrow on Where We Live. Today, we're previewing an NPR Family Matters program that's coming up in New Haven on November 19th. If you want to find out more, go to our Facebook page at Where We Live. Joining us uh, from the NPR studios in Washington, D.C. is Michelle Singletary, who's a nationally syndicated personal finance columnist for The Washington Post and author of The 21-Day Financial Fast, Your uh, Your Path to Financial Peace and Freedom. Also with us is Tim Maurer. He's a financial planner and speaker and author. He's director of personal finance for Buckingham and the BAM Alliance. He's got an upcoming book called Simple Money. He's at St. Louis Public Radio today. We're taking some of your calls. And let's go to Janie in Berlin. Hi there, Janie. Hi, how are you? Good. What's on your mind? Well, uh, my grandfather passed away and has left uh, an investment fund that's being divided up amongst several of us as an inheritance. And my question is, and I don't even know if it's possible, should I ask to retain a piece of it and have that transferred over to my name, or should I simply take the cash settlement once they and didn't divide it? Boy, Jenny, a tough question, and thank you so much for that. Uh, I don't know. Tim, you want to take that? Yeah, I might actually need a little bit of clarification. Jenny, are you talking about is the decision between just taking cash or taking whatever the investments were that he owned uh, prior to his passing? Great question. So right now they're talking about closing the entire account and settling it out in cash amongst the inheritors. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering instead, should I ask that I can keep a piece of whatever it was that he had in the account, just you know, my, my percentage of it, I suppose? I see. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that does. It's a it's an excellent question. Here's what I would say: depending exactly on how this was titled, you may indeed be able to take the the securities like kind. That is the same things that he owned. At that stage of the game, you'd likely would get a step up in cost basis, which means that from a tax perspective, you would own those securities. At, at the price that they were on his date of death, and then if they go up or down from there, that's going to be considered where you have, quote-unquote, purchased them from a tax perspective. But one thing I would invite you to consider is that whatever his investments were may indeed not be appropriate for you. Not only are you guys different ages, you may have different set of values or goals, and as a result, you should probably be investing it for you according to your own values and goals. So my guess is that the the simplest path forward would simply be to take cash, that there's likely no benefit to simply receiving the like-kind securities that he had, and then you can take that cash and invest it however you should according to you. Janie, I I hope that helps. We're very sorry for your loss, and and, uh, thank you very much for your phone call. Let's go to Mike in Southington. Hey there, Mike. Mike, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. What's your question? Well, I, I have more of a statement than a question. I, I'm an accountant, and uh, I deal with the tail end of people's retirement plannings and 401ks and all that. And I have to tell you, I do not agree at all that people should be investing their 401k money in the market. There are alternative investments that are much safer and pay out much more. And, and, and I'm telling you, as an accountant that sees the the final results that I do not believe people should be investing their 401k money. My, most of my clients have rolled their 401k money over into life settlements. There, there's no two ways about it. We don't care what the market does. The market can fall out tomorrow. But the reason that life settlements are not pushed by financial planners and financial investment people is because they don't make big commissions on them. That's what the driving force is. Hey, and thank you very much, uh, Mike, for that. Michelle, you want to uh, tackle his statement? Uh, I want to let Tim <laughs> take this home. Um, I, 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 I disagree um, overall, I think. Um, and Tim just told that young lady, it, where you invest your money depends on, you know, your risk tolerance. Um, and I've seen plenty of people heading into retirement who invested a more traditional way in, in stocks and bonds and have been, you know, amply diversified and, and had great returns. I mean, I look at my own portfolios and my husband's, he's got a federal and I've got a private and we have about the same and we've been investing about the same um, more heavily stocks because we were ultra conservative at the beginning so we were playing catch up. Um, and I'll let Tim handle the question about the life settlements and these sort of alternatives. Yeah. I think you have to be really careful about other alternatives. I don't know of any safe alternative that would give you the same kind of returns as the market and that key is the, the word safe. Yeah, Michelle's absolutely right. And Mike, first, I want to say I understand your sentiment and that Mike is absolutely right that the that the compensation structure in the financial industry has long had way too much of an impact on what it is that investments are recommended for folks. In other words, there has been an inherent conflict of interest, especially with high commission products. Now, that said, neither Michelle nor I accept commissions for making investment recommendations. And so when we look at it from a 
purely objective perspective, the truth is life settlements have some of the biggest commissions in the business. Mm-hmm. They're, they're some of the more volatile creations because there are unique types of risk that you most people don't really understand as it relates to life settlements. I'm not saying that a life settlement should not play a, any role in anyone's portfolio, but it also – in my opinion, would be foolish to just back the dump truck up and put all your money into life settlements. If if you're going to consider that for a portion, then use the same advice that Michelle and I are giving. It should still be broadly diversified. You don't want to rely on any single investment, whether it is stocks, bonds, life settlements, or cash, to be the only thing that is going to provide you with financial security into the future. Okay, so I just have one minute for each of you, and I'm going to ask you to go first, Tim. What's one thought you want to leave our listeners with? Maybe something we didn't get to yet, but a piece of personal finance advice they probably should take away from this. The most important thing that you can do in your financial realm is control your cash flow. We've talked a lot about what we would prefer people do. I also think it's important that we mention we understand that an awful lot of people, including us at various points in our lives, have made financial mistakes or we have simply made a decision. We may have too much school debt. We may have too much in automobile loans that are burdening us financially. We understand that, and there is a course forward. We're not judging you. We're not condescending on you, but recognize that there is another path that you can take forward. And lastly, John, I would just say where we started with this, personal finance is more personal than it is finance. Don't just look at the numbers. Consider yourself. Consider your history with money and what you want money to do for you into the future. Last 30 seconds, Michelle. Uh, you know, just have a plan. Um, I, I would hate for anyone to go away from this program feeling more anxiety or that we don't want you to have an enjoyable life. You mentioned something about people feeling bad about that smoothie. I don't want you to feel bad about that. I just <laughs> I want you smoothies. to be intentional about where you spend your money because you only have a limited amount of resources. So I want you to put it in areas that really mean something to you so that at the end of your life, you can look back and say, oh, my heart hard work was for something. My husband and I believe in giving back. We believe in tithing. So we make other decisions so that we can make room in our budget to do that. We want to send our kids to school debt-free. We make room in our budget and we don't get some things because that's a value to me. Those might not be your values and that's okay. But listen... Write down your values and then make sure you're spending your money that aligns with your values. And so if that smoothie is something that starts your day off right and allows (laughs) you to go and work with people who get on your nerves, have that smoothie. (laughs) That's good good advice from Michelle Singletary and Tim Maurer. You can join them both with David Green and Yuki Noguchi at the Yale School of Management for this special program. Thank you both. Find more at Where We Live on Facebook.